Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian Industrial Relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm a partner in the industrial relations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm very excited today to be joined by my Perth-based colleague, partner, Rachel Dawson. Welcome, Rach. Thanks. Lovely to have you here in Perth. And to be talking about bargaining, something we're seeing a lot of over here in the West at the moment. That's right. And it's great to be over in the West. And I think your first appearance on Inside IR, Rach, how are you feeling about that? Slightly nervous, but but excited um, and just so happy to host you here at our new offices. We're at one, the Esplanade. We've just moved in um, about a month ago after 20 great years up at the terrace at QV1 building and just loving the spectacular views we have here over the, the Swan, um, Swan River um, at Elizabeth Quay. So welcome. I must say it is an impressive building and to our clients who are lucky enough to maybe get an invite from Rach to come and have a look, do do that. Uh, it is a beautiful space and you can probably see out the window behind us. So um, wonderful to be here in Perth filming Inside IR. And as you know, Rach, we've had a pretty busy couple of months on Inside IR. We've been dissecting the new industrial relations reforms that are coming through from Secure Jobs Better Pay. And we've covered things like multi-enterprise bargaining, the new intractable bargaining jurisdiction. We've wrapped it all together and looked at what that means for bargaining planning and, and preparation. And we've also had a look at the history of industrial relations and what similarities and differences there are with these new laws compared to the past. But there's one very important topic, Rach, that we haven't covered yet, mm. and we have been getting a lot of questions about that. And it's the changes that are being made to the EA approval process. Mm. The process is leading up to a vote and the processes that the Fair Work Commission then need to employ in assessing the applications for approval of enterprise agreements. So we'll be covering, covering that today. We'll be zeroing in on three key issues, Rach. The first will be the changes to the better off overall test. There's been a lot of talk about those changes and they have been made in the aim of simplification mm. of the test. My personal view is that it's probably a little bit more complicated now, but we'll leave that for a little bit later. We'll then move to the second point, a related topic. We'll look at the new power of the Fair Work Commission to directly amend agreements where they've got concerns about the better off overall test as an alternative to our familiar process of, of giving undertakings. Third, and perhaps most importantly, we'll cover the new test on genuinely agreed, what it takes mm. in order for the Fair Work Commission to be comfortable that employees have genuinely agreed to the making of enterprise agreements. And as part of that, we'll cover the new Fair Work Commission statement of principles on genuine agreement, which has now been released mm -hmm. at the time of filming. It was released just about a week ago. Um, and there is a lot to digest in that. And we'll, we'll cover that very shortly. But first, importantly, the transition to these new changes, I mean, the better off overall test, Rach, that will apply. Those changes will apply to enterprise agreements that are made post six, uh, on or mm -hmm. after 6 June 2023. So the, the timing of the voting process is important there. The statements of principles on genuine agreement and the new changes to the genuinely agreed test, importantly, they only apply to bargaining rounds that commence on or after 6 June 2023. So there's a little bit of nuance there as to when these particular changes take effect and worth checking those and whether or not they apply in the context of your bargaining round. 
But as I mentioned, Rach, many of these changes have been made purportedly in pursuit of simplification of of our IR system. And I've got to say, I've got a bit of a sceptical eye to that. I think in many respects, um, it's making uh, aspects of the system more complex or less certain. But I'd be interested in your views on that, Rach. I mean, do, do you agree? Yes. I mean, I think changes to the, the boot and the way we manage the approval process sorely needed, but I tend to agree with you that these changes don't actually uh, result in simplification. And I certainly think that genuine agreement will continue to be a real source for objections from, from the unions. Yeah. And that one, that's particularly contentious, I think. And we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later on. But uh, let's reflect on that question of simplification as we mm. go through the, the specifics of this uh, and talk about it a little bit more. So we might might start with you, Rachel, on our first topic. What can you tell us about the changes to the Better Off Overall Test? Yeah, sure. So here we're talking about the boot, the Better Off Overall Test. And as a very quick refresher, that is the test that needs to be undertaken to demonstrate that the agreement will leave the employees better off overall than what they would have been um, if they were to receive the benefits and entitlements under the applicable um, award. Now, this has been um, a source of great frustration for many employers during the uh, approval process. Um, And and that is because, um, particularly over the last few years, we more and more have seen um, the Commission often apply an, an approach that's really separate from the practical realities of the workplace. So it wasn't unusual to see questions coming out of the Commission or member assist around the boot and concerns that just actually don't arise in practice for Mm. that employer or applying it um, in ways uh, by using rosters that they just don't use. They're just never going to to use. And so I think some of these changes um, are aimed at dealing with with that issue. Removing the need to have to consider the hypothetical arrangements that don't really apply in practice, I guess. Yeah, that, that's right. So one of the key changes is that moving forward, the Commission can only have regard to reasonably foreseeable patterns of work mm. or rosters of work or, or types of work rather than being able to consider um, theoretical um, rosters. So in considering what is reasonably foreseeable, the Commission needs to have regard to the nature of of the workplace and they must take into account um, the views expressed by uh, the relevant employees um, and and bargaining representative. The other um, change that I think is is aimed at this same um, issue is confirmation that the boot is a a global test, not a line-by-line test. Now, I think that is how we've always understood it. Yeah, certainly consistent with the prevailing authorities' uh, query whether we actually needed that clarification, but look, it all helps, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. But you know, we have from time to time received comments or questions from the Commission during the approval process or objections from the union which have suggested otherwise. So perhaps mm. it is useful to just have that yeah. clarification in there um, for, for everybody to, to really understand. There's also um, some, some changes that allow or well, give the Commission greater discretion to rectify some you know small errors during the approval process. So for example, you've lodged an old an older version of the draft agreement rather than the the correct one so i i think um overall those changes are, are aimed at making the process a bit more simpler but in my view 
there's some more significant changes that do really shift the balance um, in bargaining um, in the sense that I think the, the, the boot will be more, um, there will be more reason to engage with the union around the boot as you move into a vote and through the approval process than what perhaps we've seen um, in recent times. Well, it's a really good point. And you actually see that particular issue come through in, in various of these changes that we'll talk about, giving primacy to the views of union bargaining representatives, which essentially makes them a lot more relevant to the process, even more than they were perhaps in the past. Mm. But you mentioned, Rach, that there's been clarification that there's no need going forward when these new laws kick in mm. uh, to consider hypothetical rosters or working arrangements, mm. only those that are reasonably foreseeable. There's a bit of a trade-off, though, with that change, isn't there? There well, sure is, mm. and that is because there's now a, a ability for employers, employees or a union that's covered by the agreement to make an application to the Commission at any point in time after the agreement um, has been approved to have the boot reconsidered where mm. there's been a change in in working conditions. Rebooting, if you will. Rebooting, <laughs> yeah, what a great, a great term. But really leads to quite a significant level of uncertainty and I think um, a real need to think very carefully about what the boot looks like when you do make roster and other types of changes and to consider whether it's going to give rise to a risk of some form of challenge. And I think that that will drive um, employers to have to really consider the boot um, throughout the life of an agreement rather than it potentially being something you do as you put an agreement to vote and, and maybe not think about it again till the next time you renew your, your enterprise agreement and gives the unions uh, more involvement in that process uh, rather than that just being reserved for the bargaining context. And that's certainly consistent with the advice I've been giving to clients. It's like the, the simplification of the test in the sense of it not applying to hypothetical arrangements is good. But you essentially have to ignore that simplification or you're, be you're better off to ignore the sim simplification and actually test your agreement against the full gamut of potential uh, work patterns and scenarios that you think might be possible during the life of the agreement, um, which essentially takes you back to the old test anyway. You're still mm -hmm. doing all the, the work that you were going to do. Yeah. And the reason you're better off doing that is because you don't want to be surprised with an application to mm. reboot during the life of the agreement because it might just simply result in you having to uh, make further concessions as to what is contained within it. You're better off dealing with that during the bargaining process. Absolutely. Where you've got capacity to influence it a bit more. Yes. Well, I mean, the last thing you want is for your business to say, we need to make this change and to have to be in a position to say that's going to cause us significant concerns under our agreement because of a, a boot and for that to be a surprise yeah. rather than planned out. Yep. And had we known about that in bargaining, then that would have been fine, but we would have asked for this in relation to this other clause or yeah. for a different arrangement to be in place. So, yeah, precisely. Yeah. And the process that will be applied in the rebooting is the same process that mm. is applied at the approval stage um, in the sense that the, the Commission can test it um, and has the ability to make changes, and we're going to talk about this a little bit further on um, in, in the podcast, I, I think, um, but the ability to, to make changes to the agreement to um, deal with their boot concern. Yeah. So it's quite a different process to think about perhaps being 
um, in that position two, three years after you've had your agreement voted up and approved. Yes, just when you think you've got everything settled and certain, you're sort of dragged back into the commission in relation to the boot again. But that's probably a good segue, actually, Rach, in relation to the new alternative that the commission will have to directly amend the agreement as an alternative to undertaking. So where the Commission has a concern about the better off overall test, there's perhaps a particular deficiency that the Fair Work Commission thinks might tip the balance mm. on the overall assessment of, of the boot. In the old days, uh, the Commission would really have to request undertakings mm. that ask the that explain the concern of the employer and they would ask the employer to propose an undertaking to address the concern. And then the employer would have some options there. There's often lots of different ways to approach the concern and resolve it. The employer would work out what works best for it. Views of the other bargaining representatives would be sought and then the Fair Work Commission would sign off the undertaking. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that option still remains, but there's an additional power going forward where the Commission can hear submissions on the Commission's concerns, take into account everyone's views, but they don't necessarily need to wait for an undertaking. They can just directly amend the agreement to address the boot concern and then have the agreement approved and apply with those changes. Now, that all sounds pretty efficient and innocuous, but what it does is re remove an element of employer control yeah. over this process because um, under the old rules, the employer could consider the request for the undertaking but would, mm. at least in theory, have the choice to actually reject it and say, I'm not prepared to make that concession. There's actually other things in the agreement that I wouldn't have offered yes. had I known that I had to make this concession. So I'm going to refuse. I'm happy for my agreement application uh, to be rejected. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go back to bargaining. And we're going to resolve this in the bargaining process. Didn't happen all that often, but it was a theoretical option available. Whereas going forward, that option will be gone because the Fair Work Commission will just simply make that change after hearing submissions yes. directly into the agreement. So I, I see that as another exposure for employers, I think. I um, do too. And, and I think a, a, a bit of a shift in the way that we plan during the bargaining process because the uncertainty around the boot has meant that from time to time you're making um, strategic decisions that perhaps... Um, uh, the Commission might have some queries around the boot mm. relating to a particular term, but if it does, you'll be able to manage it by giving submissions on your position on why it's acceptable and, um, if you need to, making the decision of whether you will or you won't um, uh, give an undertaking. Now, I think in this new world, we might look at that a bit differently and perhaps take a bit more of a cautious approach because a risk is that the Commission will make a decision for you. Um, so I, I can see that just playing out a bit differently it's in the bargaining point. planning yeah. process. It certainly means that you need to be very well informed about how the agreement is going to go against the, the boot and what the potential exposures are. Mm -hmm. I think that's a common theme. Should we move to generally agreed, Rach? We, we're done with the boot, I think, um, which brings us to our sort of third and final topic, and that is the new test for the Fair Work Commission in determining whether an enterprise agreement has been genuinely agreed mm. to by employees. Now, before we get into this, Rach, I'm going to say something relatively controversial. I don't love these changes. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of downside in them. I think overall they make things a little bit more confusing for employers in the sense that there's less certainty as to what they're actually required to do in relation to pre-vote, 
processes. And I'll explain why, but to do that, I think we first need to start with some context. The current provisions that apply in relation to the generally agreed test. Now, keeping in mind this test, these provisions will continue to operate in relation to any bargaining around that commenced prior to 6 June 2023. So when I say commenced, I mean the, the time of the notification time being the trigger of commencement of bargaining. And in relation to that test, the existing test, it was reasonably clear. It was, there were, there were really six key things that the Fair Work Commission had to be satisfied of in order to reach the view that the agreement had been genuinely agreed to and that that particular approval requirement was met. And those six, six things were first, employees had to have access to the enterprise agreement and incorporated materials for the duration of the clear seven day access mm -hmm. period, reasonably clear. The second was that employers had to notify employees of the time, date and method of the vote ahead of the commencement of that seven clear day access period. The third was that the employer had to ensure that the terms and conditions and the effect of those terms and conditions in the EA were explained to employees in an appropriate manner. The fourth was the employer had to wait until at least 21 days after the giving of the last notice of employee representational rights. The fifth was a need to ensure a valid majority of employees uh, voted to approve the agreement, relatively straightforward. And then finally, a bit of a catch-all cat category, that there was, the Fair Work Commission had to be satisfied there were no other grounds, reasonable grounds for believing that employees had not genuinely agreed to the EA. So that, they were the six things that the Commission had to work through and consider in order to reach a view that the EA had been genuinely agreed to. And I mean, we'd had approximately 14 years worth of case law that had considered all of that. And, and in my view, uh, at this point at least, I think the law is pretty settled on all of this. I think we understand what each of the, these things require employers to do, how to do it. Um, and yes, there'd been some uncertainty along the way, but mm. 14 years down the track, we're all pretty clear on these things. Now, in come these changes. Now, for bargaining rounds that commence on or after 6 June 2023, the rules are now different. The entire test has changed. And some of the requirements I've mentioned have been removed from the Act itself, those six conditions I talked about. Some have come out of the Act. Mm -hmm. And they've landed instead in what's called the Fair Work Commission Statement of Principles on Genuine Agreement. And the Fair Work Commission is now required to take into account that statement in determining whether or not employees have genuinely agreed to the EA. We've now got a copy of that statement. There's 20 principles in it, including the definitions section, 20 things that should be followed by employers. Now I say should deliberately because the Fair Work Commission is only required to take into account the statement. That's not determinative. And many of the principles that are contained within it are expressed in terms that are perhaps not mandatory. Employers should do this. Or generally, if employers do this, then that will be the outcome. Generally, if employers don't do this, then that will be the outcome. So it's, it's very clear that this is not intended to be determinative. An employer might follow every one of those 20 principles and still find themselves on the wrong side of the genuinely agreed test and have their agreement rejected by yes. the Fair Work Commission. Lots of room for challenge. Lots, and that is the main point, Rach, I mm -hmm. think. Lots of extra avenues for challenge by unions who simply don't like the deal 
that has been voted up by employees, mm. where they're looking perhaps for mechanisms to oppose the agreement in the commission. Um, likewise, you might actually follow each of the 20 principles and find that there's some other, for some other reason, the Fair Work Commission um, doesn't want to approve the agreement because it hasn't been genuinely agreed to. Mm. So I think when you look at all the amendments that have been made to the Act on this particular issue and you have the overlay of the 20 principles that sit on top, it's actually really difficult to work out practically what has changed. For employers that are familiar with these processes in the system, really hard to know what do I need to do differently post 6 June. And we've published a blog post on this, Rach, encourage all our listeners to have a look at that because it steps out all of this in a bit of extra detail and explains yes. the situation. So we won't delve into all of it today. Um, but I think we will make it easy for our listeners today, Rach, perhaps focus on those practical things that have changed. Because when you work through those 20 principles, one thing that jumps out to those that know the case law well is that most of those principles actually reflect the existing state of the law. They're things that, if you know the case law well, they're things that employers had to do anyway. And it's simply codifying that and setting it out in an easy-to-read format. But there are, before we get too comfortable with all of this, there are six things, Rach, that we've pulled out of this statement that we think represent a departure from the existing state of the law or impose additional obligations on employers to follow in meeting this generally agreed test. And I think they're the six things we want to focus on today. So, Rach, perhaps you can kick us off maybe with the first three differences, mm. new obligations in the statement of principles that perhaps employers did not have to follow before. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first to start with is in relation to the timeframes that apply when you put an agreement um, out to vote. You've already spoken about the access period and the seven clear days that we're all familiar with. Well, these changes have moved away from that concept and instead refer to a concept of reasonableness. So, for example, employees have to have a reasonable opportunity to consider the proposed agreement um, and its incorporated materials and the explanatory materials rather than it specifying the seven clear days. So previously you knew, so long as you ticked off on that, you would be fine. Um, I think the concern with, with this change is that the statement um, seems to suggest that if you apply um, the seven days, then in a lot of circumstances, you um, will satisfy that requirement, but leaves open the door for some circumstances where potentially a longer period of time um, is required. And there isn't really a lot of certainty over those particular circumstances. No. I think where that leaves employers is you should start with the seven days, but you probably need to quite carefully consider your workplace and the, the nature of your work to make a decision of whether there's circumstances that warrant uh, a longer period. And at this point in time, we don't really have any certainty over how the Commission um, will approach that um, or whether or not the unions will use that as, as a basis um, for objection. Well, I think, Rach, I mean, we've all been involved in matters where unions just simply don't want the agreement to ever commence operation and they mm. look for every avenue possible, run every point in order to be allege on the list. this will be on the list. <laughs> so 
Uh, for employers that want to reduce the risk of successful challenge in the commission of their enterprise agreements that have otherwise been voted up by employees, you really need to provide more time, don't mm. you? If, and particularly for agreements where there's been a lot of changes, maybe employees need more time to understand them and get across them, mm. or maybe for um, where you've got rosters that have employees working very heavy hour, hours over the duration of that seven-day period preceding the vote, maybe that mm. requires more time. But like you said, Rach, we, we don't know yeah. at this point as to uh, what those scenarios may be. But if you want to play it safe, mm. I'd, I'd be recommending that you provide more time rather than less. But what is the magic number? I mean, do, do we double it? Do we say now we're talking a, a two-week, longer? I, I think that that's all to play out yet. That's right. Mm. So that, that's the first one, mm, Rach. That's What's the, first the, one? the second of our six differences in the Statement of Principles? The next one uh, relates to the explanation of terms of the agreement and the effect of the terms. So as you noted, that's, that's the, the test that must be satisfied during the access period is to ensure that the employees who are asked to vote on it have the terms of the agreement explained to them and the effect of those um, terms. This process has been quite a time-consuming process for, for many employers um, because uh, over the last couple of years, we've been taking more and more of an approach of just putting a lot of detail in that explanation documents mm. um, to, to make sure that we can't be tripped up. It can't be another point that the unions can take um, objection to. Um, would like to think that we would be moving away um, from that process, but I'm sorry to say that that is not going to be uh, achieved because become more onerous. <laughs> it will become more onerous. And that's because the statement um, confirms that not only do you need to explain the terms um, by reference to a comparison between the agreement and the existing agreement, if there was one, but also by reference to the award that would apply um, if the agreement wasn't in place. And that goes beyond what we've seen um, in, in the case law and can end up in, in, in a process where you just need to provide the employees with a lot of detail. Mm. You need to put the detail in there, but also you've got to be very careful not to make a mistake. That's right. Um, because the statement also confirms that if the employer misleads an employee about the terms or the effects of the, the terms, you won't have explained the agreement in the way that you need to to be able to satisfy the requirements. So, so to, to draw that a little, uh, draw that out a little bit for those that haven't read the twenty principles. Mm. So for those that haven't already got an enterprise agreement and negotiating their first one, of course, yes. the explanation needs to be as against the modern award. Now that again consistent with prevailing authority. Yep. That is no different. Statement of principles con confirms that mm -hmm. and makes sense. And makes sense now where you've got an existing agreement, probably the case for most of our clients, mm. the obligation is to explain as against changes that are being made in the proposed agreement as against the existing underlying agreement. Yes. But the main difference is the statement also suggests that we need to explain uh, any conditions that have changed in the underlying award since the last agreement was made. That's right. And it's that bit that I think goes a little bit further than what the prevailing authority is. 
Agreed. Which to me generally would suggest that you just explain against the existing agreement. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're right, that is an expansion of the, the obligation mm. to explain the terms of the agreement. Mm. And again, for those that want to play it safe, you're just going to have to go the, the whole way. That's aren't you? right. You just put the detail in. I mean, mm. particularly in a, in a world where your um, current agreement is, is old. Mm. So there's been quite a significant That's period true. of time yeah. since you um, got that agreement voted up, such that there might be quite significant changes um, that have been made to the award in that period of time. It also is just um, difficult for employees to understand, you know, why they're receiving all of this information that hasn't really been relevant to their, their working life because they've been under an enterprise agreement for some period of time. So it's also difficult to give a nice, clear, crisp message mm. to the workforce about what they're voting on as well as being able to comply with, with, with these requirements. It's often not a riveting read either. <laughs> it's a bit, of a bit of a tough slog getting through it all. But anyway, which um, brings us to the topic of uh, voting, mm. Rach. I had a question from a client today. Can we continue to conduct votes by way of a show of hands? Mm. What's Apparently the not. Apparently not. Um, because the statement suggests that the vote that an employee makes cannot be disclosed to um, the employer. Now, look, a lot of our clients have for a very long time used electronic voting providers in a way that means they can't identify who makes what vote. So perhaps for them, this isn't a, a huge change. It is the process that they would have used anyway. But, you know, we, we have always said to our clients, there's many different ways that you can hold a, a vote. It can be done in a room with a, a show of hands. It can be done by um, posting your vote in. Um, it can be done through electronic voting um, providers. I, I think now those options are limited. We're, we're no longer in a world where a show of hands will be acceptable. What's interesting about that is the Act in other places, so for example, protected action ballots, make mm. explicitly clear when a vote is to be a secret vote, secret ballot. There are no such prescription in the actual Act around yeah. the voting process for enterprise agreements themselves, which to me suggests that, well, other methods should be appropriate, provided there's no suggestion that it influences people's votes inappropriately. Mm. But that, that's where this, this expansion, I think, in the Statement of Principles is interesting and very clear statement that employers should not know what individual employees are doing with their vote. So fascinating. It is. Which I think brings us to the next three, Rach, which um, I'll take us through. And this is, I think, the most interesting one, the new provisions mm. in the Act that require the Fair Work Commission to be satisfied that the employees to be covered by the agreement are sufficiently representative and that they have sufficient interest in the terms of the agreement. And I think this is where we're going to see, unfortunately, raft of litigation on these two particular requirements. The Statement of Principles does add a little bit of details to what <clears throat> the Fair Commission is going to expect employers to do to comply with these tests. But the statement also raises a range of questions. So, for example, it suggests that uh, the requirement that their employees have a sufficient interest in the agreement might not be met in the event that they're not going to be paid the actual rates set out in the agreement. Now, we all know it's reasonably common for there to be minimum rates agreements that are negotiated, where employees receive rates that 
are above what is contained in the instrument. Mm-hmm. It does raise some questions about that, mm-hmm. keeping in mind that comment from earlier that none of this is necessarily determinative. You might not comply with one aspect of the statement of principles, but nevertheless still get through the genuinely agreed test. But that's going to be one to watch, and it certainly presents uh, new opportunities for unions to challenge the terms of agreements that they perhaps hadn't in the past. Mm, I really agree. I mean, it's not it's not uncommon for um, employees on the same classification or doing the same job to receive slightly different pay in a workplace, depending on a whole raft of circumstances, including how long they've been employed by their employer. Mm. But this change really um, assumes a world where everybody receives the the same and there's not variation depending on matters such as performance. That's right. Uh, That's right. It suggests that the rates have to be in the agreement. Um, and on the sufficiently representative point, we all know that's been put in there to put some rigour around uh, what, what's been called startup mm. enterprise agreements, where perhaps employers have had an agreement negotiated with a very small handful of employees with a view to then engaging more down the track. And it's, uh, the statement makes it very clear the Commission will at, le- at least expect that some employees are engaged in each classification that it covers, each location each type of employment, e.g. casual, part-time, full-time, um, and at least in some of, in all of the industries and occupations that are covered by the agreement. Now, that in itself um, raises some questions. I mean, what happens of an agreement that purports to cover a particular geographical location where there's an intent to perhaps um, operate new sites into the future? There's obviously no employees at those sites now because they don't exist. Is that going to raise questions? So there's a, a lot of um, lot of uncertainty around the edges on these new tests, and no doubt we will we will see a lot of case law develop in relation to them. Relatedly, point number five of uh, expansions of existing principles, the Commission's also going to expect the agreement to have been a product of an authentic exercise in agreement making between employer and employees and that the employees have had an informed and genuine understanding of what they're voting on. Now, all that sounds pretty sensible, but again, it's going to raise further opportunities for uh, largely unions to rely on this terminology with a view to finding new arguments to use to oppose enterprise agreement approvals. And then finally, unions will have increased capacity to influence the Commission's views on whether an agreement has been genuinely agreed. This touches on a very similar point to the one you raised in relation to the better off overall test rate, because if you have a look at principle 19 of the statement of principles, it states that if there's one or more employee organisations, i.e. unions, who have acted as bargaining representative for a significant proportion of employees, then the Commission should give significant weight to that union's views in considering whether the agreement has been genuinely agreed. So there's another indicator, Rach, some real incentive to make sure that employers are engaging with unions and getting them on board, Mm. getting them on board with the agreements that are being put to vote. But conversely, what it does suggest is that if an employer goes to vote without union endorsement, gets the vote up, that employer is going to face an even harder time, I think, in getting their enterprise agreements through. That's a very clear signpost in the statement of principles and in the legislative changes that we're seeing in this space. Yes, I think uh, gone are the days where you can 
just accept um, the union agreeing not to run a no campaign and being satisfied that that's enough to put your agreement right. to vote. Mm. You will really want to be sure that they would go further than that and support your approval process. Now, we should say it doesn't completely discount the possibility of getting agreements approved where they don't have union endorsement. That's still available. But I think the very clear message from us and from these new changes is that employers need to be crystal clear as to their obligations and not take any risks in the pre-voting processes that they implement and in these various other requirements in relation to the content of the agreement. There's just no room for error because otherwise you're giving too many free kicks to unions or others that, that want to oppose the agreement down the track. Now, there are a few other small things around the edges, mm -hmm. right? I think when you trawl through that statement of 20 principles, there's a few other bits and pieces that I've had sort of clients and colleagues mention as maybe representing a little bit of a change. Mm. Um, they're sort of more minor, but definitely highly recommend anyone who is engaged in enterprise bargaining, uh, whether it be on the employer or, or union side, very much worthwhile going through oh. those principles, getting across them, becoming familiar with them, and then having a think about how that might change the processes that you're used to going through. How many days uh, access period are you going to rely on? We're not calling it the access period anymore. But are you going to you going to give ten days? Are you going to give fourteen? These are all the things that we need to to start thinking about. Yes, and I think um, we can't leave it until you're ready to put the agreement to vote to start to think of these things because they will, as we said earlier, feed into your bargaining strategy and planning and the way that you um, manage the employees and the union along the way. So now is the time to get your head around it um, and fully understand what your plan's going to be. And also monitor changes in this space because the Fair Commission could well at some stage make changes to the statement of principles. So we'll have to monitor mm -hmm. that. But even more importantly is this new regulation making power. So that is, that is a real sleeper here. Mm -hmm. There is the capacity for government to, uh, to create regulations that impose additional requirements on employers in order to meet the genuinely agreed test. So we don't have any at the time of filming, but that could easily change. And you could foresee how that regulation power might be used to close down perceived loopholes, Rach, that develop over time. Mm -hmm. So uh, as ever with industrial relations, very important to monitor reform and keep a close eye on new obligations as they arise into the future. We're certainly in a period of uncertainty. That's right. That's one thing that is certain. So there we have it, Rach. I think that's a quick whirlwind tour of the changes to the EA approval processes and, and pre-voting processes. We hope you've found those tips useful. And as always, we'd love to hear feedback on Inside IR. If you've got any feedback or ideas for topics for future episodes, please comment on LinkedIn, send us a direct message or email us on insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, thanks for joining us again and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Inside IR.